Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. Amen. Well, listen, we've been doing a series working our way through the book of Acts, and we've covered a lot of ground. Don't have time to recap in depth. Let me just kind of gloss over some of the things that we've talked about. We start in Acts chapter 1, and in verse 1, it talks about the gospel account of Luke and says that was just all that Jesus began to do and teach. So we took some time and talked about that was just the beginning. All the wonderful things that happened in the gospel accounts, that Jesus was just getting started. That wasn't the entirety of his ministry. That was him just getting the ball rolling on his ministry. He's still alive and active and wanting to minister to people, minister in you, to you, through you. Jesus was just getting started. And listen, wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, Jesus has that same perspective on what he's doing in you as well. He's just getting started in what he wants to develop on the inside of you, how he wants to use you, the levels he wants to bring you to. It doesn't matter how old you are or how long you've been serving him. There is no plateau in the kingdom of God. Jesus is just getting started in your life. He's got so much more for you. What you've tasted and seen of how good God is, he's got what is even better. Draw you into a deeper place of intimacy and fellowship with him. Amen. God wants to bring you closer. See, Jesus is just getting started. And then he starts to talk about how he sends his Holy Spirit. Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. There's a way for us to know Jesus and then experience this second second infilling of the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the church is born. And thousands of people are being brought into the kingdom of God. The church is launched. 3,000 people that first day. The next couple of chapters, it's talking about the spread of the gospel. People are being added to their number daily. The church is just, I mean, just spreading like crazy. And then we hit chapter 7, and persecution begins against the church. That religious Jewish people begin to persecute the church. It started with them stoning Stephen. Chapter 7, chapter 8, the persecution continues to the point where the Christians are fleeing Jerusalem and they're going to other cities. We talked about it last week. The scattered Jews or the diaspora is the the Greek term. The book of James is written specifically to the diaspora Jews. They're, They're being spread about. We talked about the idea of a spore taken from diaspora that It carries the life of where it came from and it reproduces and multiplies in the plant world. And the same thing happens in the body of Christ. That is, they were trying to crush and destroy the church when those believers fled. You know what went with them when they went? The gospel, the good news, so that the church just continues to multiply and spread and leave Jerusalem and take over new regions and new territories. We talked about Philip, who's one of these Christians who was driven out of Jerusalem by persecution. He ends up in Samaria, and you know what he does when he gets to Samaria? He starts telling people about Jesus. He starts starts preaching the gospel to them, and people start getting saved, and miracles are happening. There's this one guy named Simon who had been a sorcerer, just doing all kinds of crazy, magic, demonic, witchcraft things. He ends up getting saved, gets baptized. And when different apostles come, and they're seeing people filled with the Holy Spirit, he loves what he's seeing, and so he says, hey, I would like to buy the ability to do what you guys are are doing. He he doesn't know any better. He sees something desirable. He offers them money, and he gets rebuked for it, right? And they say, you can have no part of this. Why? It says, because your heart is not right. 
And then part of that rebuke, your heart's not right. What was wrong in his heart? They said, because you think you can purchase the gift of God. That, that mindset, that heart condition where you think you can barter, purchase somehow what God intends to be a gift, cut him off from being able to receive the very thing that he was in pursuit of. And we talked about how you and I maybe have never tried to offer a certain amount, a certain amount of money for the gift of God, but lots of us have tried to offer a certain amount of behavior for the gift of God, a certain amount of good deeds, a certain amount of jumping through hoops to earn the favor of God. Surely God sees what I'm doing here. Surely God sees how many times I've, I've read the Bible this week. Surely I'm going to spend an hour in prayer and we have a certain amount of of uh, work to try to earn what God intends to be a gift. We looked at the book of Galatians. This is a problem that doesn't seem like a problem. So I'm trying really hard. What could be wrong with that? Well, whatever God intends to be a gift by his grace, when you think you can earn it or when you try to earn it, you actually cut yourself off from the thing that you're, you're in pursuit of. And if the enemy can mess us up on this area, instead of just receiving receiving the grace of God and celebrating, God, it's not, I, I can't do anything to earn it. It's all because of your goodness. Then what we do is out of response to his goodness instead of trying to acquire or earn his goodness. If the enemy gets us twisted around on this, it is incredibly damaging. Because things that, that should be good, is it good to read your Bible? Of course it's good to read your Bible. Is it good to spend time in prayer? Absolutely it is. Is it, is it good to do good deeds to other people? Of course. But if the enemy gets us twisted into this earning, purchasing mindset, then things that should be beneficial actually become damaging because they just become an amount that we're trying to exchange. It becomes a device for us to barter to try to, to earn the favor of God. But it's just a gift, Amen just receiving the gift of God. And then those things are done in response to his goodness. So my hour in prayer isn't trying to twist God's arm to, to give me something. I'm, I'm just fellowshipping with my father. I'm just casting my cares on him. I'm just spending time enjoying prayer instead of it being a, a striving of the flesh. Because once it becomes in the flesh, the Bible says the flesh profits nothing. You're spinning your wheels. You're not making any progress once it becomes a work of the flesh. It says to be carnally minded or fleshly minded is what? It's death. So instead of those things being a breeding ground for life and growing closer to the Lord, your spiritual disciplines done with the wrong mindset can actually become a breeding ground for death and drive you further from the Lord. So it's very important that we understand you cannot try to purchase what God intends for you to receive as a gift. Amen. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. I told you when we started this series, as we work our way through, that I was going to be leaving a lot of meat on the bone. And by that, I meant that it's not, this is not going to be an exhaustive study of Acts. We'll go to each chapter, see what God would point out or want to speak to us from. But there's so much, there's so much in these chapters. And I'll tell you, a great place to dig into the meat that's left on the bone is in your connect group to get together, talk about what God spoke to you in the service, and then dig into the other, other passages from the chapter that we've been looking at. Spend time during the week reading. Keep on track with us, what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. Read that chapter, take notes, and you can share with your Connect Group family what God has been speaking to you as you discuss what we talked about in service as well. Acts chapter nine, before we start reading, let's take a minute and pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that you'd bless us with eyes to see, bless us with 
a hearing ear, hearts that are tender and receptive. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Father, we ask for a spirit of revelation and understanding. Flood our hearts with light so we can know you more. We praise you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter nine, verse one. says, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So it's talking about Saul. This character Saul first showed up back in chapter seven when they stoned Stephen and they laid their coats at his feet. And then we see him continuing to intensify this persecution in chapter eight. We get to chapter nine and he's still at it. He's still going after the church. He's issuing threats. He's wanting to murder people. He's having people drug out of their homes, thrown in prison. And now he's wanting to get outside of Jerusalem. He realizes that the Christians have fled the city and he's not leaving it at that. That's not good enough. He's going after them. And he gets permission from the high priest. Now he's going to Damascus to do the same thing. To, to take people and bring them back to Jerusalem, either have them killed, have them in prison. And it says both men and women. And it's interesting that both times in chapter eight and in chapter nine, it lets us know he's doing this and they specifically let us know it's men and women just to let us know how ruthless he is in pursuit of this mission. It doesn't matter to you. You're a man, you're a woman, you've got little kids. He, it doesn't, it, it does, he doesn't care. He's just looking to put an end to this Christianity that, that's taking over. He wants to crush the church and he has, there's no mercy involved. Man, woman, it doesn't matter. He's gonna put you to death. He's gonna throw you in jail. He's gonna drag you out of your home. He is on a mission to end the church. And he's going out after believers, anyone who's a disciple. And it refers to the church as the way. Anyone who is of the way. Man, what, what a cool nickname for the church. People who are of the way. That's us. We are people of the way. We'll come back and talk about that in just a minute. Verse three it says, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he and some of his companions get permission, leave Jerusalem, they head to Damascus. It's about a six-day journey. And it says as they're getting close, they've been traveling for almost a week. They're, they're right on the edge of arriving at their destination. And suddenly this bright light shows up. Saul falls to the ground and this voice begins to speak. It's Jesus. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now in the verses we just read about the persecution Saul was, was doing, who did it say that he was persecuting? So that he was persecuting men, he's persecuting women, he's persecuting disciples, he's persecuting followers of Jesus, he's persecuting the way. There's no mention of, of Jesus in that. He's persecuting people. But when Jesus shows up, he takes it personally. He says, why are you persecuting me? Now, th this is very basic. When you 
came to a, in a relationship with Jesus, you, you probably have that understanding that we have been united with Jesus, right? But oftentimes, that reality is overlooked or downplayed or minimized, and so we don't fully, fully realize or experience the benefit of the reality that we have been united with Jesus, that you have been, you've been brought into a union made one with Jesus Christ himself. And you can see in this passage that Jesus, Jesus sees you and him as being one. You persecute a Christian, Jesus takes it personally as him. So it would be wise for us to gain the same kind of perspective that Jesus has, that we have been unified and we are one. I'll give you a couple of verses to back this up, although there are many, many we could look at. First Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 17 says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. If you've been joined to the Lord, spiritually speak, you have been made one, made one with Jesus. Ephesians chapter one, verse three says, all praise to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, which we, we could talk on and on about the significance of that verse. But why? Why has Jesus, why has, he, why has he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms? It says, because. The reason is, we have been united with Jesus. We, we have been made one with him. Now, a lot of times we talk about that reality. How many know we've been made one with Jesus? And it's just something that stays at a level of, that is so neat. Isn't that neat? Don't you guys think that's neat that we've been made one with him? We're like one. I think that's just so so cool to think about. It's so nice that we've been made one. And we move on, and it doesn't really change the way that we live. It doesn't impact the decisions we make. It doesn't change the way that we step into to challenges. But you can see from this passage, Jesus is addressing this situation from the standpoint that he is one with believers, that they've been made one. That's why he's addressing. He's coming at it and says, why are you persecuting me? He's even talking that way. It's, it's just a reality that you and him are one, right? Why, why are you persecuting me? And he doesn't even offer an explanation to Saul. When he asks that question, hey, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't then break it down and say, I, I know technically you're not persecuting me. You're, you're persecuting these folks that follow me. But the way that I see it, because I love them so much, I just like to say it's like we're one and the same. He, he offers no explanation because there is no, no cheesy explanation to go along with. It is a reality in the mind of Christ that if you have accepted him, you've been grafted in and you and he have been made one. And Jesus is addressing the situation from that standpoint. Why are you persecuting me? How often do you address situations from the standpoint that you and Jesus are now one and the same linked together? When's the last time you had a challenge come into your life, come into your family, come into your finances, come into your body, and the way that you approached that challenge, the way that you addressed it was from the reality that you and Jesus Christ are one. You've been completely united. When was the last time? That's, how, that's the way that you faced life, allowed it to affect, affect decisions, allowed it to affect the way that you speak. It should be a reality in our lives. You have been united with Jesus Christ. What would it look like if that's how we approach situations? When you see people in need, when you see people that need someone to minister to them, people that are struggling, and you think, 
man, I wish somebody would help them. They, they, they just need someone to minister Jesus. Wouldn't it be neat if they could have an encounter with Jesus? Yes, that's probably why God has had your path crossed with theirs so they could have an encounter with Jesus because from his perspective, you and him are one. You have the life of Jesus on the inside of you and there should be no separation. I'm not talking about from an arrogant, weird standpoint, new age stuff. I'm talking about the way that Jesus sees it. You and I have been united, united with Jesus. We are one with him and the church has hurt itself by, by making a distinction where Jesus makes no distinction. Where we come up with a discrepancy between us and Jesus out of honor and respect. That, that's not the way Jesus approaches it. He, he approaches it as one. Think about John 15 where Jesus talks about how he is the vine. He's the vine. We are the branches. He's the vine. We are the branches. A familiar passage. When Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. What he is emphasizing is not the distinction between the two. He's emphasizing the union of the two. If, if I came over to your house to do some yard work, don't get any ideas. This is purely for illustration purposes only. If I came over to your house and I said, okay, what all do you want me to do? And you said, okay, I need that cut down over there. I need that trim back there. I want you to trim those hedges and you're giving me all, all the list of, of chores and you say, hey, but whatever you do, don't touch that tree over there. That, that tree, I just want completely leave it alone, please. I got it. And so I start working in the yard. I'm out there doing all the stuff and you look out a little while later just to check on me, see how I'm doing. And you look out and you notice that I've cut all the branches off of that tree. You, you come out and you say, what, what in the world are you doing? If I say, hey, relax, I didn't touch the tree. All I did was cut the branches, just calm down. Would you say, oh man, Whew. No, what, what are you, stupid? I mean, you, that is the tree. The branches are the, if, I, if it was the other way around, I'd say, hey, 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 calm down. All I did was cut the trunk. I didn't cut the branches. Would you just relax? Right, it's all this, it is the tree, right? It is, it is one. So when we start making a distinction between branch and vine, vine, vine and branch, that's not why he's given us that illustration. It's about unity, how they are one, that the life is in the vine is the same life that's in the branch and that's how the branch is able to produce fruit. The problem comes when there is a separation between the branch and the vine and that's where fruitfulness is completely cut off. So what damage have we done in our own lives and what God has called us to do as individuals and as a church, where out of, out of reverence, of course, we make this separation between us and Jesus. And what happens when there's a separation between the vine and the branch? There's a lack of fruitfulness. We can't, we can't produce fruit because it's, it's about union. When Jesus is saying, you, you abide in me and I abide in you, right? You've read John chapter 15. That's, that's the language he's using. I'm in you, you're in me. The life of the, the vine is in the branch, the branch is in the vine. My words abide in you, you'll bear much fruit. But when we start calling up distinctions, separation, that's not the way Jesus sees it. But if you do have that awareness, Man, when I lay hands on someone, it's like Jesus Christ himself is laying hands on someone. No, I'm not just some guy struggling to make it through and I'm trying to figure things out. You're not just some lady trying to put the pieces together and work your way through. No, I've been made one with Jesus Christ. So when I step into that situation, I'm able to bear fruit like him because it's the same life flowing through him. There's a confidence to bear fruit, but as soon as we lose that connection, we don't understand, no, it's the life of Jesus operating in me. Man, fruitfulness becomes difficult, if not impossible because separation has occurred between the branch and the vine. Jesus said, why are you persecuting? Why are you persecuting me? We can't allow that reality of union with Jesus 
just to become neat, to become a nice thought, to become a, a doctrine or a theology. It's, Jesus sees it as a reality. He just, he just assumes everybody understands. And if you don't understand, he doesn't care. That's why he doesn't bother to explain it. He's, he's just walking, moving forward with that reality. So Jesus takes it personally. Takes what personally? The persecution that's taking place. What's happening to these people? People are being beaten, brutally killed. I mean, a horrible way to stoned, pick up rocks and just injure someone by throwing rocks into the point where they die. Families being torn apart, people being threatened and harassed and intimidated and imprisoned. And so Jesus is about to confront his abuser. And how does he do it? He confronts the one who's been abusing him, doing these terrible things. And all he does is ask why. Saul, Saul, you're persecuting me. Why? Why is this question that it's so small and so simple, but it has the ability just, just to cut, right? When why is pressed, it, it, can, it can move you to a point of really having to deal with heart issues. It can move you to a point of discomfort. Even when, when, when kids use it. Have you ever been around a toddler? If you have kids or if you've been around kids that seem like they all go through this phase in the toddler years at some point where they just, they learn the question why or they're so inquisitive and they just will just pepper you with the question why. Anyone ever been in that situation? I mean, they just, they won't let up, right? And the first couple of times they ask it, hey, something simple happens, why? It's like, you gotta be kidding. It's so obvious. This kid's just like, mentally challenged or something. What is wrong? He's no common sense. Why would you even ask that? And he asks again, why? Why? And they keep on going with why. You first, first, like you think the kid's stupid. The kid takes on after his mother's side of the family or something. I'm, I'm in character. I'm being you right now. This isn't me. I would never, I would never think that way. But have you ever been around a toddler that starts off asking questions that they ask why and it's just like, ugh, figure it out. It's so obvious. But they keep pushing with that why and get you to a point where you're like, I, I don't know. Go, go play with something, right? They start off with things that are obvious and they keep pushing you and pushing you with why until you get to a place of, of discomfort because they've, they've gone beyond what you can grasp. Why, why is just a question that has the ability to cut and especially when Jesus is the one wielding that question. When he asks why, he has the ability to cut through pretense and facades and, and everything that's superficial and use that question why just to cut down to the heart, which is what the Bible says that the word of God does. Jesus is the word. In Hebrews, it says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between joint and marrow, to distinguish between the the thoughts and the intents of the heart and everything is laid bare before him. And sometimes Jesus uses that question, why? Just to, to lay open the heart. Jesus has a way as you work through the gospels when he encounters people just to state what that person is doing to him and then just attach, why? Why? Why are you doing it? Good, good or bad? Remember the story of the rich young ruler? No? There's a story of this guy. He's a rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus. He's got lots of, of, of wealth. He comes to Jesus and he falls before him and he says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? You remember how Jesus responds to him? Only God is good. 
You called me good. Why? Why? Just restates what the guy has done and then adds the question, why? And if that man would have wrestled with that and allowed that why to penetrate, maybe that story ends differently than it did. Why? Why did you call me? Only God's good. You called me good. Why? Why? Or in Luke chapter six, Jesus is talking to a group of people and he says, you call me, you call me Lord. You call me master, but you don't obey me. You, you don't listen to what I say. Why? Why do you do that? He asks, he asks Paul here, you are, you're persecuting me. Why? When we read through the Bible, usually, maybe all the time, that question why isn't, isn't answered. And so it's easy for us just to kind of cruise over. I think it's not answered so that we can take time to wrestle with it and think about the motives. and what, No, what, why? Why did he call him good? No, what, why do they call him Lord? Why would somebody call Jesus master and then not, not do anything? Well, why, why, is, why is Saul persecuting the church? What if we took that and applied it to you? What are you doing to Jesus? What are you doing to Jesus and why? What, what would that answer be? What would that reveal in your heart? Such a a great exercise to subject your, yourself to. Maybe it's the way you're treating other people, like in Saul's case, that when it comes to other believers that you're distancing yourself from them or you're, you're being judgmental towards them or you're being jealous of them or you're being harsh and mean-spirited to them. That that's the way you're treating them. That's the way you're treating Jesus. Why? What's, what's going on in your heart? That's the way that you're acting. That's the way you're interacting with them. Why? How are you treating Jesus and why? Maybe it's more directly in your relationship with the Lord. How are you interacting with him directly? Are you disobeying him? Are you avoiding time alone with him? Just state what it is and then try to figure out why. Why are, why are you avoiding? Why don't you spend time with him the way that you know you should? Just, it, it can really just cut down to the heart. Well, I, I know that I should spend time, but I, I guess... I guess the reason I avoid and always come up with an excuse and I allow busyness to crowd it out is because, man, if I, if I got alone with the Lord and listened for him to speak to me, I'm, I'm just afraid I'd never, I wouldn't hear anything. I don't think I can hear his voice. And so I think that's why you, you can get down to the heart of some issues that you're dealing with. But what are you doing with Jesus and why? Even if it's good. Rich young ruler, you call me good. That's a nice thing to say to Jesus. Jesus just wanted to know why. You, you, you're worshiping the Lord. Okay, Why? Why? Because that's how we start the service. We sing songs. Everyone else's. You know, uh, because I'm worshiping because I really like this song. Or I'm, I'm worshiping because why? Because he's the king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's my redeemer. He's my rescuer. He, he's the one that gave me life. He made me and he purchased. Just why? What are you doing to Jesus? What are you doing to Jesus? And why? And he said, who are you, Lord? Verse 5. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Saul's interacting with Jesus. He says, what do you want me to do? Get, go on into Damascus and you'll be given further instruction. So the men with him lead him. He's blind. He's there three days. He hasn't eaten anything, hasn't drank anything. Verse 10. 
Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Saul's led into Damascus. Meanwhile, there's this guy named Ananias that the Lord says Ananias and begins to give him, speak to him very specific instructions, right? Gives him, literally gives him an address to go to. Go to this street, go to this person's house, knock on the door, ask for this guy. When you interact with this guy, lay your hand. I mean, very, very specific instructions. In verse 13, Ananias voices some concern about this situation. He says, Lord, okay, but I've heard about this Saul guy. I know about him. I know the terrible things that he's done to believers. I know the harm that he's causing, and I know why he's here. I know he came to Damascus for the very reason to do some more of those terrible things to believers. And he starts offering up a rebuttal resistance to the Lord. Do you know when the Lord speaks to you, most times when he's giving you direction, it's, it's not something that you would have done on your own. That he's, Ananias is offering an argument that is, makes sense logically, right? That Saul is a bad guy. He's somebody I should be hiding from, not going and trying to find. This doesn't make any sense. It's not, it's not safe. Well, if it's something that you would have done on your own, if it's something that logically in your own mind you would have gone ahead and done, you probably don't need God to speak to you to do it. God speaks to us to give us instruction to help us do things we wouldn't have otherwise done. And when we offer up an argument, God has already thought it all through. We're not going to present a side that God hasn't considered or isn't aware of. When he says, but Lord, Saul, Saul is a bad guy. God, was God aware that Saul was a bad guy? But when, when God lays something on your heart and you start offering up, Lord, but what about my children? God, but what, what will they think? Lord, what about the other people at work? God, you know about my bills. You know about this situation. God is already well aware of all of it. Now look, with this situation with Ananias, what was he worried about? how Saul was destroying the church. Why did, why did the Lord want him to go and minister to Saul? To help change him from the one that destroyed the church and convert him into one that would build the church. So the very thing he was afraid of and was going to not obey because of, he was actually going to be part of the solution to deal with the thing that he was afraid of in the first place. Sometimes God will ask you to do something and the very reason you say, no, I don't want to do that because of this situation, you walking in obedience would solve the very situation that you're worried about in the first place. So Ananias, thankfully, submits and obeys because God says, I want you to go anyway. Why? Verse 15, because Saul, Saul is a chosen vessel. He is my chosen instrument to bear my name 
to Gentiles. I've chosen him. I have something specific for Saul to do. My chosen instrument to play this particular role in advancing the kingdom of God. So Ananias couldn't have said, hey, you know what? Can we just cut Saul out of this and I'll just go, I'll just do that job and we can just leave him blind in the other part of town, just leave him alone? He he couldn't have done that because God had something very specific for Saul to do. He had a plan for his life. He had, when he he created Saul, no, he's, he's my chosen instrument to do these things. It wasn't just Saul, it was Ananias as well, right? Ananias was a chosen instrument to bear the name of God and to carry a message to a specific person. That's why God is dealing with him. He he, he says Ananias and then begins to share instruction with him. He didn't just say, hey, anybody. Is there anybody willing? Hey, is there anyone down there? He calls him by name. He's got a specific assignment. Ananias is the same thing. He is a chosen instrument to be used by God in a very specific way. When he's sharing, when God is sharing with Ananias, his plan, he says, Saul has already seen a man named Ananias coming in and like, Saul already knows Ananias' name. He's already seen him in a vision. God has a specific plan for Ananias to carry out. Ananias is a chosen vessel, a chosen instrument to bear the name of God and to carry out a specific function. It's not just Saul, not just Ananias. It's you as well. You are a chosen instrument, a chosen vessel with a specific assignment to bear the name of God and to carry the message of God to a certain group of people, a certain place, a certain time. God has a specific call, just like Saul and Ananias. He knew this, Saul is chosen. When he was being formed in his mother's womb, I I already knew how I wanted to use him. It's the same for each person here this morning. God knows how he wants to use you. You are his chosen vessel, a chosen instrument to do something significant in the kingdom of God. He wants to use you in an important way to bear his name to certain people. Listen to this verse in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 says this, who who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. I recently heard a pastor minister on this passage of scripture, and it was so powerful because he linked up, like it is in this verse, being saved and being called because oftentimes we will separate the two. But you can see in this verse, they're one and the same. It's impossible to be saved without also being called. If you are saved, if you're here today and you'd say you are saved, you know what that means? You are also called with a holy calling. Holy means special, set apart, something unique. You have a holy calling on your life. You are a chosen vessel, a special instrument to God to do something specific with your life. If you are saved, you are called. You're not just to be saved. Hey, I'm just going through this life saved. You're also going through this life called. You are called. It says, not according to works. Now, obviously, when he says not according to works, he's talking about works of the flesh and going back to that earning idea. But I think we can also apply it, not according, you are called. It's not just according to your work. Because a lot of times when we think about what God is calling us to, a lot of times that's just career and just job, which is an important part of the puzzle important part of God's calling on your life, but that's not the full extent of the calling. Whatever God has called you or led you into as far as career path, a teacher, a doctor, a mechanic, a lawyer, 
whatever it happens to be, that's not the extent of your calling. That's just the means by which, that's just a pathway for you to minister your calling. God wants to make kingdom impact, to use you to make kingdom impact. That's one of the reasons it's so important as parents, as we're raising our children and helping, helping them decide what the next phase of their life is going to look like, that it's not for them to decide what they're going to do with their life. It's to discover what God has already planned for their life to be. It's not just, oh, son, you are so gifted. You could do anything you want. What do you want to do? You just have to decide what career, how do you think you could make the most money and enjoy your life? That, that is the wrong way to bring up our children because God, they are a chosen vessel. They're a chosen instrument to bear his name. God already has their days preordained, a plan that existed before they existed of what he wants to do in their life. They are to discover what God's plan is. So instead of saying, hey, look at the career path. Look how much money. Look at, look at what this would look like. Teach them how to hear the voice of God and be sensitive to the leading of God. That that's how we're supposed to instruct our children to discover God's call on their life because they are called. And it's not just a career. That when God puts people in careers, again, that's just a means by which they can minister, to give them a platform, to bring them before certain people, to give them certain opportunities, to, to be a business owner, to be a lawyer, to be a salesman. Those, those, that's not a calling, but how to impact the kingdom of God from those positions, that's your calling. God's calling doesn't stop, hey, you're, you're to be a principal. That's no calling. You're to be a principal and impact the, God and impact the kingdom of God as a principal in these ways. That's a calling. Be, being the top salesman, being a business owner, that's too small of a reason for God to put a call on your life. There's something far more significant for you to do than to be top salesman or employee of the month or whatever other uh, achievements in the flesh you could have. Those, those are all great and wonderful. They just provide a platform to minister from and to make impact for the kingdom of God. Amen. And God wants to use you. There is a call on your life that when you step into those arenas, you are a business owner, you are a teacher, whatever the role is, that that is just the means to bring you in certain situations for you to impact and advance the kingdom of God, for you to bear God's name before those people. That, that's the calling. Verse 17, Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once and arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. So Ananias obeys. Man, there's such a chain reaction in obedience, such a chain reaction when people fulfill the call of God on their life. You can see, I mean, it just starts to trigger off. Ananias is obedient, doing what he was called to do. It launches Saul into doing what he was called to do. People become impacted. We're impacted today because of other people's obedience. People will be impacted by your obedience or they'll be harmed by your, by your disobedience. Let's circle back to verse two. I told you we'd come back to this idea of being people of the way. Verse two, Saul asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. People of the way. You 
You know, one of the reasons that's such a significant name for the church to call believers, people of the way, is as you go through the Old Testament, one of the messages you see in the Old Testament is that there was no way, that the way had been cut off, the way had been closed. As far as accessing God, accessing forgiveness of sin, that the way had been closed. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter three, right after Adam and Eve sin. Genesis 3, verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to guard the way to the tree of life. This way of, of stepping into life, eternal life, abundant life, it had been cut off because of sin. When we read through Exodus, they're given instruction about building, building the tabernacle and, and later the temple. As they're building the courtyard and the different parts of the temple, when it came to the most holy place, the holy of holies, in front of it, there was a veil, a curtain closing off the way. Behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. Above the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. But there was a veil. The, the way was closed. Access was extremely limited. The high priest once a year, other than that, ordinary men, people like you and I, had no place going in and accessing the mercy seat, coming into the most holy place, the presence of God. But the significance of Jesus is that he is the way that the way was open, that the church became known that we are people of, that we've discovered the way, we've been made one with Jesus. Now we are of, we are of the way. Let me read you from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter nine. Hebrews chapter nine, starting in verse six. It says, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made man. The, the way, it wasn't open. The way wasn't made manifest. It wasn't revealed. How do I get into God's presence? There, there was no access, no way. It was symbolic, verse nine. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with food and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. If we skip over to chapter 10, verse 19, it says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter 
heaven's most holy place. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus has opened. He's opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. We can boldly go because of the blood of Jesus. The way that was closed is now open. And you and I are of the way. We've been united by Jesus. Jesus said, I am, I am the way. You and I have come to know him. We've stepped into the way. We're united with him. We are of the way. That means we represent how other people are gonna come into relationship with Jesus. That when people encounter us, they're encountering the way. It's whether we present the way to them and let them know that we are of the way, whether they have an opportunity or not. But there is a way. Think about the things that men and women wrestle with, that you and I have wrestled with. Is, man, is there a way for me to get free? Is there a way for me to find purpose? Is there a way for me to feel loved? Is there a way for me to feel belonging? Is there a way for me to be forgiven? Is there a way for me just to start over and have a fresh start? Is there a way? Yes, there is a way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer to all those things that people wrestle with. Jesus is the way. And if we know Jesus, we've been brought into the way. We've been brought into that. We've been made people of of the way. The people see us live, see us walk, see us, they can taste the fellowship of God on our, on our lives. I carry the life of God. You carry the presence of God with you. They can see, man, that somehow, they, they must have, they found access to God somehow. They, that's a person of the way. It's like an aura, an aroma off of our lives. There, there's a way in this, there's a way into peace. There's a way into joy. There's a way into fellowship with God. I'm, I'm a man of the way. You're a man of the way, a woman of, of the way. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.